1: Hi, this is Nancy. Today we'll be talking about another one of those topics that has historically not been discussed uh, very often outside of medical circles, and that is the hospital rehab cycle many older adults find themselves caught in in the last few years of their life. My guest, Dr. Lynn Flint, a palliative care physician and associate professor in the division of geriatrics at the University of California, San Francisco, has written and spoken about this topic. Her article titled Rehab to Death was published in the New York Journal of Medicine in August 2018. She is here today to talk about this phenomenon and discuss possible solutions for breaking the cycle and improving the quality of a senior's final years. Dr. Flint, I am really happy to have you here. I came across your article last summer and was hoping you would come on my show. With all that is happening in the medical world, with COVID, et cetera, I appreciate you taking the time to be here.
2: Thank you for the invitation. Sure.
1: Um, Thank you. Can you please, um, can you, let's start by um, having you talk about this phenomenon, what it is. Um, I call it the merry-go-round because that's what I imaged in my mind when, when I read about it. And you have written about it and termed it rehab to death. Can you describe this cycle for us?
2: Absolutely. Um, And it's a cycle that I've seen from both sides. So being in the nursing home as a clinician, being in the hospital as a clinician, seeing family members go through this. And it is when an older adult becomes ill and requires a hospital stay, maybe they're living at home. We know that many, many older adults have hospital acquired disabilities that are just, it becomes a little harder to do the things they need to do to get through each day, their activities of daily living with each time they go into the hospital. And sometimes that functioning declines enough that they're not able to be at home safely when their acute hospital care needs are completed. And that is when the hospital will recommend a transition to a rehab facility. And I'm using air quotes because many times we say rehab in the hospital, but what we really mean is skilled nursing facility. And that older person would then be transitioned to the skilled nursing facility to get stronger. I'm using the air quotes again, Mm -hmm. doing therapy, maybe completing some treatments for whatever illness they were in the hospital for. Mm -hmm. And many times the functioning, the decline continues and new complications come up. And we see this people bouncing right back to the hospital, maybe a week or two after they went to the skilled nursing facility. And that just perpetuates this ongoing decline. And many times people don't actually make it back home.
1: No, I don't think most um, adults understand that, um, particularly as you get older, to simply spend two or three days in bed 24-7 in a hospital right there requires some kind of what is called um, reconditioning. Um, Just, you know, you may be treated for a pneumonia and you may be well enough to go home day three, four, but you now have lost um, muscle tone quickly or the ability to really walk independently. And so that's when those short-term stays begin to come into play, aside from maybe continued um, therapeutic um, treatment for your illness.
2: Absolutely, yeah, people quickly lose the ability to independently do you know, one or two of their activities of daily living. Maybe it's walking safely by themselves, mm-hmm. um, getting to the bathroom, managing, getting dressed, those sorts of things. So it's really important to advocate for early mobility. You know, Even if your loved one is in the hospital with pneumonia, it's still important for them to be up out of that bed in a chair, at least, because that uses more muscles than than lying in bed. So from day one, that can be really important.
1: Right. And you can request a PT evaluation in the hospital so you can walk your loved one up and down the floors. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yep. But nobody tells them. Nobody tells <laughs> the family that until they say, can I get my mother up? So, um, and there are So the things that drive people back to the hospital, you said, um, you know, other issues come up, like yeah, well, we infection.
2: That's what I was going to talk a little bit about. We just we gave a completely invented example case study in our article that we wrote, and Mm -hmm. it was of a 87 year old woman who has pneumonia. She's living at home with you know, some impairment in her functioning at that time with some dementia already, memory troubles, but managing, getting along at home okay, getting into the hospital with pneumonia, being there for a week or so, going out to the rehab facility, and then getting a complication, another infection, maybe you've talked about this on here, I'm not sure, the the C. C. diff, this is a it's an intestinal infection that can happen as a complication of being on antibiotics for an original infection. So it's like one infection can beget another infection, and that can lead to the person going right back to the hospital for treatment of that new infection. So maybe it's a new infection, maybe it's a fall with an injury. Related to mm-hmm. the decreased functioning that the person has,
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, maybe it's about of delirium or confusion that could be related to a whole bunch of factors. Um, so Dehydra- lots of different, mm-hmm. yeah, dehydration. Dehydration.
1: I mean, there's, you know, unless you have family coming in, when you're in the facility, there's no one there saying, "Here, drink more water. Drink more water." Um, yeah, so you can yeah, become dehydrated.
2: I think there's some, there's pretty wide variability um, in the quality of care that is happening and depending on how stretched the staff is. And, you know, especially in the context of the pandemic, things have really changed in nursing homes. I think they're filled with it. I'm, I'm filled with gratitude for all the heroes who are staffing our nursing homes throughout the pandemic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a really challenging, it's a tall order. The, the staff are really caring for a lot of very frail people.
1: They are. yes, and and often a lot a, a, you know good number of them at one time. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so um, So you worked in a facility and mm-hmm. saw this happening and started thinking about it. Um, What, um, what are the other things that you noticed when you were working in those facilities? Um, We, we talked briefly before the show and there has been some change you said, but in policy, but what are the incentives? Are there still those incentives for nursing homes to not treat that infection on site or, I, I mean it's it's kind of a delicate subject but I loved that you just addressed it head on.
2: Yeah, there there are a number of policies and it gets pretty complicated when you actually dig deep into the Medicare and Medicaid uh regulations. Mm-hmm. Uh but I will say I I can talk about a couple. When I was working in the nursing home it was about actually 15 years ago now and um 15 years ago, up until about a year and a half ago, the Medicare short stay benefit for nursing home care. So Medicare beneficiaries are entitled to 100, up to 100 days in a skilled nursing facility for rehabilitation or IV therapies or a couple of other, they call them skilled needs. That benefit was mostly paid for by medicare based almost mostly on how many minutes of physical therapy those people could do so you could imagine that that would incentivize nursing homes to accept higher functioning people who are able to do lots of physical therapy minutes each week um, and i say minutes because it actually like went down to the minutes when you put in the billing. Um, And so that disincentivized nursing homes actually from admitting more frail, complex patients who really needed options. And it it also, if they did have those complex patients, um, you could imagine if they weren't doing a lot of therapy minutes and they got sick, there's a strong incentive to then move them back to the hospital because they weren't bringing in a a lot, a higher rate when they were in the nursing home. Now I don't really suggest that there were any individuals sort of sitting down saying, ah, this person isn't bringing in a lot of money. I'm going to send them back to the hospital. No, I think it's just the forces of the structures of care. Um, Yes.
1: Well, and, um, you know, this is not a show about rehab, but I will briefly say, as you know, there are different kinds of rehab, and those who go to the nursing home typically are more, they are more frail, and they, um, they typically um, need, they're not able to do the three hours a day that Um, uh, an acute setting would uh, require. And so they're getting 30 to 45 minutes a day, perhaps. And some of that includes just learning how to sit up on the side of the bed. And Mm -hmm. so um, you can see how... Um, in that process unless someone's there to work with them those other 23 hours and 15 minutes a day that uh, reconditioning might be a challenge in those situations
2: yeah and it it brings it brings me to two thoughts number one you're you are kind of perpetuating that issue that we initially talked about which is the being in bed all the time so even as you say with 30 or 40 minutes of Mm -hmm. exercise exercise may be being sitting in a chair sitting on the side of the bed that you're still mm-hmm. really immobilized for much of the day. But I will say that, the, that Medicare did shift this policy in October, 2019, and they transitioned to the patient-driven payment model, PDPM. And the reason that I mentioned that is because it actually is really aimed at removing that incentive to only admit people who are able to do lots of physical therapy in minutes. Mm -hmm. And it allows, it's a complex equation how you figure out how much money each person brings in each day, but it factors in medical complexity, nursing needs um, and kind of more of the, kind of real picture of what we're seeing the jury's out on what the actual patient outcomes are going to be. We, we don't even have two years in yet. So we don't have the data to know what's changed.
1: So they're, they're um, looking at all the, the disease or illnesses, comorbidities, as you say, and Mm -hmm. um, and paying the nursing facility to, to care for that as well, which is only fair. Um, They would, yeah. But, um, and I should say that it's not that people only are being sat up in bed. They are actually getting therapy, PT or OT therapy. However, they're not getting a lot of it.
2: Yes. Yeah. I will add I, the, the two things that I think are, there's a couple of interesting pieces about this new payment, not to get too deep into the policy, but number one, as you mentioned, when somebody gets sick, um, maybe with this new way of payment, it will incentivize nursing homes to keep patients there when they're well enough to stay in the nursing home, but have an acute illness. So they might might be able to avoid hospitalizations because maybe the nursing home will be able to be paid a little bit more if somebody has a mild infection, pneumonia, right. something like that.
1: Keep them there and manage it, yes. Yeah,
2: so the hope is maybe it'll prevent that.
1: However, um, the goal of many, many people is to go home. And, yes. um, you know, that's sort of my... I think one of my primary missions in life is to help people remain in their home or get back to their home. And so primarily because of COVID, but um, I've had a real shift in my thinking about looking at people rehabbing at home if possible. And Mm -hmm. so are there cases where that might be appropriate for people to leave the hospital and go home with rehab rather than to a facility? Mm -hmm. And do you see any benefit to that?
2: I do. I mean, I think especially in the context of COVID, Mm -hmm. trying to get people home is going to be the most preferable route. Especially for patients who have the family and friend and caregiver network that can kind of string together and help support the person.
0: <laughs> um,
2: I think, you know, right now in the era of limited visiting hours or visiting availability, all of that, there's a lot of there's a lot to give up when someone makes the choice to go into a nursing home.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah, they put themselves, there are a number of risks that they expose themselves to, certainly. Um, Could it be that um, the, yeah, the patient can initiate that with the discharge planner or even friends um, or family can initiate that conversation about going home? I think oftentimes discharge planners assume that if Medicare or Medicaid won't cover the cost of care at home, that, that it really isn't an option. But, um, um, many of, many of them know that people do have the resources, but they just simply need to find out if those resources exist. And
2: I think you're absolutely right. I think it's the advocacy being able to speak up about this because the merry-go-round, like you say, it's turning. Some people call it the conveyor belt, um, it, the path of least resistance sometimes is going out to a short stay nursing home. And mm, you're right. the, way, the way to get home is to speak up and say, actually, I have this, this network that can come together and do my exercises with me every day and set up my home in a way that it's safe and get me to my appointments.
1: Well, and home health and then- can come in and do the actual therapies, right?
2: Yes, yeah. absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Although I would also add that I think even doing home health does require that caregiver network to. Oh, absolutely. Right. Carry the exercises forward and all that. Yeah.
1: Right. Yes. Because right, they need to. Um, they're only going to be there for, you know, a short period of time each day, and. Yeah. Yes. Um, but I, I've also found that sometimes insurance companies ask people to leave rehab and go home before they're ready to. So that's yet another cycle that I've seen is the home hospital rehab mm-hmm. cycle yeah. as well. People mm-hmm. go home and they're not prepared and they say, oh, yes, I have support. They just want to go home. and. Uh,
2: yeah, I mean the burden of transitions especially mm-hmm. in the last year of life is tremendous. The number and just the burden.
1: Right. And there's been a lot of written and talked about and um and I think you know some of the home care companies have set up transition programs and they they market that to hospitals. And so it's it's worth having the conversation. Absolutely. To, to go home. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so we are. I can see that I am late for our first break, and so oh, we're right on time. So let's take a break, and I'll come back with Dr. Flint, and we'll talk more about some of the solutions um, to help people have improved quality of life in those last years. We'll we'll be right back. Thanks. <music>
0: This is Aging Life Network. If you have a question or comment for Nancy about the show, please send an email to nancy at aginglifenetwork.com. That's nancy at aginglifenetwork.com. Now, back to the program. Hi,
1: this is Nancy. I'm here with Dr. Lynn Flint, palliative care doc and author of the article Rehab to Death. Um... I want to sh- we talked a little bit about what families and friends can do circles of support um, can do to help um, to help older adults break to help break the cycle and ultimately to get people home and living a better quality of life or or perhaps even to a different kind of living situation other than a nursing facility but when is it appropriate for the for the healthcare provider or even the family to bring up what what you you all in healthcare call the goal of care conversation. Tell us about the goal of care conversation and when should that be addressed?
2: Absolutely. a, A goals of care conversation, it's a phrase that we use in the hospital all the time. And it really means taking a step back, thinking about what is this person's future expected to be? What, is, what are our expectations of what might happen for this person and their health and their functioning? Mm-hmm. And coming to a shared understanding of that with the patient and the family or their people, whoever their people are. Mm-hmm. And then allowing them the opportunity in that context to think through and talk about what's most important to them. So for example, if, if there's a sense that somebody has a short prognosis, let's say it's not going to be years and years anymore, we think it's going to be about a year or so, and we expect Illness to continue to progress, and they're continuing, that there will continue to be times in the hospital. Um, Giving somebody that estimate then gives them the opportunity to to think about okay, what's most important for me in that time? What What am I worried about? What am I hoping for? And care teams can then use that information to make recommendations about the care plan based on those goals without knowing those goals, you, you people tend to stay on that merry-go-round or that conveyor belt mm-hmm. that we we keep talking about
1: mm-hmm. um, Do physicians find it hard to have those conversations? I mean it it seems to me it it does require a certain amount of um, certainty about a trajectory of disease. Um,
2: Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. nobody, I don't think anybody likes to have these conversations, it's not easy. The the one thing that's universal, the one 100% of people who live die. And so it's so Mm -hmm. universal that I think it can be really painful for everybody having these conversations and I agree with you. I think one of the pieces in, in addition to that big existential piece that I just raised mm-hmm. is that uncertainty that people might not want to really take the risk of offering a prognosis or an expected functional future for somebody, you know, what they're going to be able to do. And at the same time, I would argue that the care team, that the clinicians caring for people for older adults with serious illness have been through it with lots of patients and families. They've seen, um, seen, they have clinical experience to guide them. They also have various, you know, we have some prognostic models. We have some science to guide us to some extent. Mm -hmm. And we can put those things together with our best opinion to offer an estimate that is oftentimes a range, I would say. And sometimes the most that we can say is the future is really uncertain. And we think there's a high risk that you could have a really serious illness in the next year well, or serious I, complication. Yeah. Sure.
1: And, and I don't know if um, I would imagine all of the diseases that, we um, acquire, that many older adults acquire as they age, uh, may not be as uh, predictable as, let's say, Alzheimer's disease. We have a lot of stats on that. And people can plan and there's an average life expectancy. And, you know, people Mm -hmm. live longer, some live longer, some don't. And it's probably the same or similar with many of these other diseases, um, COPD, or um, I don't know, you could name them before I
2: went. Heart Maybe, failure. Heart failure, yeah. mm-hmm.
1: yes. And so, um, right, and so what we're talking about is um, when they get to a point where you're really seeing the last couple of years mm-hmm. left.
2: Yeah, so the times when I think what you're meant – kind of pointing out is that there's a there's a time when the diagnosis of a serious illness is made like dementia as you mentioned and Mm -hmm. many times although unfortunately many times this doesn't happen also no it doesn't the, the planning the planning for many families really begins at diagnosis and I think similar to a diagnosis of a of a serious cancer for example where oftentimes we have a little bit more certainty around what the prognosis actually is in time. Right. Um, and I agree things like COPD, heart failure, the time of diagnosis often isn't a time when these goals of care or advanced care planning conversations happen. But I think they're a good time to ask for it actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think there are sort of signposts along the way. So when there's a hospitalization or when there's a couple of hospitalizations, these are times to take a step back and understand what does this mean for the future of this person, the expected future.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, and similar to dementia, you know that at some point you're going to need 24-hour supervision for safety. Before you even need assistance potentially with um, activities of daily living. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, if you have COPD, you know, um, how does that impact me maintaining myself in my home for the rest of my life? What would that look like? And so, um, those conversations can be had with, you know, a couple different. Um, healthcare professionals, but, um, but the goal of care is more and more often coming up in those last couple of years of life. And um, should the, so if a, if a family member brought that up, should, you know, ask the question, should we have a goal of care, goals of care conversation with mom? Um, would the doc know what they meant by that?
2: I would say Yes. Yeah. That's the the good buzzword to use. Yeah. Okay. Phrase. Yeah.
1: Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so um, we're suggesting that, that, that would be a positive thing for people to do.
2: I think it's, it's always wonderful to call the primary clinician, ask for a goals of care conversation. You could you could also say, I want information about what you expect to happen in the future and how we can plan for that. I think that's also a great way, you know, really coming up with some specific questions um, around what to expect and what might we need to be preparing for and putting in place. And in the hospital, the shorthand for that is goals of care conversation.
1: Good. Okay. Well, and that might um, be a good segue into um, the topic I know is near and dear to your heart at this point, and that is palliative care. And it is a topic I've not fully discussed on this show. And and I think it's a great topic for us to have today because, um, as you and I have discussed briefly, it is one of the solutions to breaking the cycle of rehab, home hospital or rehab hospital. Mm-hmm. So why don't we shift to that now? And, um, and can you share with me and our listeners, how, how, how do you define palliative care?
2: Great question. I'd be happy to. Um, palliative care is a type of specialized healthcare care that is delivered by a team of professionals, including usually a nurse, a social worker, a chaplain, a physician, and many times other providers too of different disciplines. We have a psychologist on our team, for example, and that team works together to care for patients who are facing serious illness, patients and their family, and really not just family, but their circle, whoever's caring for them or is involved in their life. Family
1: of choice, yeah.
2: Yeah, and the goal is to maximize their quality of life. And it can be offered at any age, any stage of illness, and it can happen right alongside curative treatments. And if I sound like I'm reading something from memorization, It comes that is a that is a paraphrased definition from the Center to Advance Palliative Care, um, and they coined the phrase "extra layer of support." So, thinking of our team as a way to to really fill in those gaps that we're talking about that help help support the person have the best quality of life they can, no matter what they're going through with their health.
1: So it is it's not hospice. You can continue to receive all the treatment that's needed if someone is um, you know they have complex medical needs, but they also are you know currently being treated for a cancer let's say, would palliative mm-hmm. care be a helpful model for them
2: absolutely, and I should clarify that palliative care is really not necessarily linked to a specific health service. So hospice is a very specific health service mm-hmm. that um, is a way of delivering care for people who are very near to the end of their lives. Palliative care in the way that I practice it, I'm a inpatient consultant. And so team, medical teams in the hospital will call our team to work with people who are facing a significant set of physical symptoms like pain or shortness of breath or something like that, and or having complex serious illness communication issues, meaning they need help from us to talk about the goals of care as we talked about. However, palliative care is available across the spectrum. So it's also available as an outpatient service, of course, with the COVID pandemic There's many more video services available where you can just do a video visit with one or two or three members of a palliative care team. And there are even models of home-based palliative care as well.
1: And so um, finding that in your community is is simply going online. And uh, I, I was looking, I think, in New Mexico where I am, I found two groups that were doing it. And so, it may be a small number of groups, but they're serving the whole population um, mm-hmm. and can be called upon by anybody.
2: Yeah, exactly. So it's kind of you know it's often like looking up who's doing who's got a cardiology practice in my area. It's kind of the same thing, um, okay. but it's variable across the country. And so if you don't see a local palliative care practice or provider. Connecting with the nearest hospice agency is also a good way to find palliative care resources.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, so is, um, is, so that term, the, that model of care is really blossoming in the healthcare community.
2: Yeah. And mm-hmm. we proposed palliative care really taking a palliative care approach as one of the solutions to getting people off this rehab to death cycle. And what we meant by that was encouraging families, but really the health, the health system to recognize that when someone is stuck in one of these cycles, that that's a sign that thing, there's a good chance things are gonna decline from where they are now. And maybe that transition to rehab for the, for the first time, depending on how much the person has declined, maybe that's one of those signposts to have a goals of care conversation. And you can use a primary palliative care approach, meaning the generalist teams that are caring for those patients, those physicians and nurses, and social workers can use those same palliative care skills. And sometimes it's really hard and complicated, and those are times to involve a specialized palliative care team.
1: And I have found um, there are some physicians in private practice who are both, um, you know, getting specialties in geriatrics, but also getting doing fellowships in palliative care. And so, when when people are people are often out trying to find that doc who has that specialty in geriatrics that can also look for that other um, designation if you will that they've had training in palliative care mm-hmm. yep.
2: yeah. yeah
1: yes I, I want to talk about this palliative care model a little bit more um, but we're going to have to do it on the other side of our last break um, okay. and so um, hold that thought and we'll be right back
2: America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play
0: finding your frequency podcast on TuneIn. Are you overwhelmed and struggling with the next step? Is your family in crisis? Do you need advice or help making a difficult decision for an aging loved one? Aging Life Network was developed to connect you with senior care experts and life care professionals who will discuss your unique situation. Through podcast interviews with senior care experts, articles, and live webinars, Aging Life Network shares with you those things you need to know to care for your aging loved one. Check out aginglifenetwork.com today and find the answers you need.
1: Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America
0: Health & Wellness. This is Aging Life Network. If you have a question or comment for Nancy about the show, please send an email to nancy at aginglifenetwork.com. That's nancy at aginglifenetwork.com. Now, back to the program.
1: Hi, welcome back. This is Nancy and uh, Dr. Lynn Flint. We've been talking about palliative care and you know, I I, um, I was just telling her on the break that I'm still unclear about when I would call in a team for my friend or my mom or my sibling um, because, you know, so far from what I'm hearing, it's like, oh, okay, well, I'll call for all three of them. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, I, I've always, I, I mean, in my personal practice I would I for years I would call hospice too soon for people and so I'm I'm that person that hears oh there's some benefit and it can help fill a gap so I'll call now and it might not be the right time to call or the right so mm-hmm. situation so could you speak a little bit more about um, about who those folks are that that um, mm-hmm. are best suited for Yeah,
2: absolutely. I, I think one of the things with palliative care is there's less of a worry about it being too soon. Hospice is really for people who are anticipated to be in the last six months of their life. And like I said earlier, it's a very specific health service. So people really transition to hospice care as their primary health care. Whereas if you see a palliative care team, that doesn't mean you've transitioned all of your care to this new way of taking care of you. It just means that team is complementing all the other health care that you or your loved one is receiving. And so when I think about times to call, I think there's less risk, first of all, I will say. But secondly, a big piece is Uncontrolled symptoms, so maybe if we talked about some examples, if somebody, you know, a very common symptom, actually, for people who are facing heart failure is actually pain. It's one of the most common symptoms that people with heart failure report, and pain is not, many times, it's not a focus of a cardiology heart doctor visit because they're focusing as they need to be on all the other things that they have to manage for the heart failure. So if there are symptoms that are coming up, physical symptoms in association with a serious illness or multiple illnesses coming together, that is a great indication that palliative care might be able to help. And I just, you know, I think pain is such a common, pervasive, difficult problem.
1: And it's, yes, and it's, Gotten trickier with the oversight of physicians, and um, yeah, it's, it's it's gotten trickier.
2: It's really tricky, and I think, you know, it's really tricky. <laughs> that right. could be a whole other conversation in and <laughs> of is, itself. It is. Sorry. <laughs> um, no, it's okay. Yeah. I mean, you're making, I, I think uncontrolled symptoms in general, though. Yeah. And that could be pain, it could be shortness of breath trouble sleeping, anxiety or depression in association with serious illness uh, or declining physical functioning associated with multiple illnesses coming together. These are all things palliative care can help with.
1: So palliative care focused more on comfort?
2: Yeah, on comfort and quality of life. So physical, really these physical or emotional symptoms. Mm -hmm. And then... Coming back to that buzz phrase that we use, the goals of care. So, you know, maybe I keep coming back to the heart failure person. People with heart failure oftentimes need a few, if it's advanced enough, they're in the hospital a few times a year. And that can be a sign of, you know, maybe there's another way that we can manage my shortness of breath when it comes up and that could be a reason to talk to a palliative care team to to really understand the the goals and kind of what treatments are too much of a burden at this point or what treatments are okay you know and and, kind of really going through
1: that you mentioned a psychologist on your team i would think that shortness of breath from either copd heart failure Um, would bring with it a certain amount of anxiety. And so I'm sure you're, you're looking at that as a symptom of these illnesses Mm -hmm. where the cardiologists may not be looking at.
2: Right. And you know, this type of multimodal evaluation and care, it really Mm -hmm. fills in those gaps, as you said. So the psychologist can help with that and the chaplain really addresses this gap, um, significant mm-hmm. gap. I mean, many, many people have pretty significant spiritual distress in the setting of facing health challenges and mm-hmm. palliative care chaplains are specifically trained to listen and talk with patients about those, those issues that come up and you know those things many times don't come up anywhere else in the healthcare system. Um, there's not a space to talk about that.
1: Does the patient actually have an opportunity to meet with a multidisciplinary team, or are they interfacing with one person?
2: It's a great question. Every every team looks different the way, the way okay. they do it. Yeah, and every day might even look different. Believe it or not, we I meet with patients together with a team of different disciplines, different providers. Sometimes the chaplain's there. Sometimes the social social worker is there. And we decide each day we're inside the hospital, but we decide a clinic outside the hospital kind of huddles in the morning, looks at their list and what's going on with those people who are scheduled to be seen that day. And we think about what is this, what are the things that this person might need the most today? And then we try to put in the clinicians that make the most sense for that person. And sometimes we get there and, you know, we realize, oh my gosh, they're, they really need the, the doctor to come and prescribe medicines right. today for their shortness of breath. And, but, right. and so we all work together across disciplines to do that assessment. Yeah.
1: So every practice is different, every state, every, mm-hmm.
2: you, you've just
1: got to look at what you've got nearby and
2: Yeah, and and it can be useful if you're going, if you're an outpatient, you know, coming into a clinic, or you're going to do a video visit or a home visit, that's, you can certainly ask kind of which providers will I see? How long, I would ask how long is the visit going to be? Because palliative care visits tend to be on the longer end. And for people who are not feeling well, that might be something to think about in your planning for that visit. So you can certainly ask about all that.
1: Sure. Um, So um, you do it primarily on a hospital basis. Sounds like you're in a clinic as well. Um, As I had mentioned, I think, um, you know, we, there are docs now who do um, that have practices, group practices where they go into facilities and see, you know, they'll go into an assisted living and see, you know, 10 people in a day in that building, and um, and it's all Medicare-based. And many of them are, um, are doing fellowships in palliative care. It seems like it might be more popular with the younger physicians. Um,
2: well, it only became a real uh uh when i say real it be, the fellowship in palliative care was first accredited in 2009 so it is actually oh it's
1: real. Well, it's new
2: it's pretty it's new as an accredited specialty there's been hospice and palliative care going on for well forever but but more officially mm-hmm. you know for maybe 80 years or so something like mm-hmm. that
1: mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. So what else, what might we say about this this rehab problem um, that could, uh, we've talked a little bit about policy shifts. We've talked about uh, palliative care as one solution. I think um, every patient should have an advocate. It's been difficult for people with COVID because they can't be on site, um, you know, waiting for the doc to come by or catching a discharge planner. Um, uh, I always encourage people to call and talk with the discharge planner after they've talked with um, their friend, the patient or their loved one. Um, What else can people do that will, um, you know, help move this thing to another, (laughs) to another level, if you will. Um, I think planning. We've talked a little bit about planning.
2: Mm -hmm. I think um, for families, it's just what you, I mean, I think it's really the communication and, and really if, if you're a family member or friend, if you're the spokesperson for an older person who's been admitted to the hospital, especially in the times of COVID, I think the most important thing you can do on behalf of that person is Call, don't take no for an answer, (laughs) get your way, you you don't need to talk to them immediately, but get your way through that phone maze to a clinician who's taking care of the patient. And early on, I would say set expectations around how you want to communicate about that person's care. Do you want an update in the context of COVID? This is really important because people are not visiting all the time. Do you want an update every single day? Do you want an update? Is there a good time to connect each day? That actually could make that that clinician on the hospital side, that could make their life a lot easier if they know they're gonna do a five minute check-in on this patient at this time each day. Mm -hmm. And understanding that, of course, that clinician is busy and has a million things to do, but if you do a little bit of legwork in terms of setting up your expectations, Mm -hmm. that can go a long way to being prepared when they start talking about discharges. Because I, a common source of frustration that I see amongst families is that phone call, and you probably hear about this, the phone call from the the discharge planner saying, Oh, great news. We got a bed and it's available at four o'clock today.
1: <laughs> right. And right. Yes. Because technically discharge is supposed to begin at the time of the hospitalization. But I, I hear from discharge planners, you know, they're, they're being asked to discharge more and more and more people a day. And so um Yes, and then there's. I mean, I've I've had that com- I've I've had that conversation where, you know, they hand you the list of twenty places and say pick three, um, mm-hmm. and so how do you pick those three? So I yeah, there's. So there's I think.
2: A- yeah, I was just going to say, as an advocate or a caregiver. Being proactive in terms of setting up that relationship with the primary clinician, I think, serves you well in terms Mm -hmm. of building a rapport, being able to get information as it comes in, not being caught in a surprise situation. And Mm -hmm. if Mm -hmm. something happens and the person takes a turn for the worse or things really aren't going as you expect, you have that relationship with that clinician to fall back on. It's easier to have these hard conversations when you've already spoken with them several times, even if it's just been a couple quick transactional transactional conversations.
1: Yes, yes. Um, And probably the last thing I would say is that um, the goals of care conversation um, could begin sooner among the family similar to, as we mentioned earlier, the advanced care planning, the life care planning, Um, particularly if somebody is, you know, midstream and in an illness that is a life ending illness, Mm -hmm. ultimately, I mean, you know, things happen and people die of a multitude of things. But if you have significant heart disease or um, COPD, or um i don't know diabetes perhaps with complications these conversations i've i've heard you say should be a part of those other planning conversations
2: yeah i think the the there's that initial advanced care planning conversation that you may have discussed in other segments and that transitions as things change over time into sort of periodic goals of care conversations that might happen when things change for the person, or maybe also just on an annual, like just every year when there's a check-in with the primary care, reviewing back to that advanced care plan. And again, you're kind of in the habit of talking about it a little Mm -hmm. bit so that when you have to have the really hard conversation.
1: So as things progress to what we're discussing today, Yeah, you can have those other conversations.
2: Yeah. Okay, well, I I think
1: we should leave it there today. Um, You are, I've just been waiting to be able to talk with you. And I really appreciate you taking the time um, out of your busy work life and family life. And um, I wish you all the best. And I Appreciate you being here today, Dr. Flint. And uh, I would encourage people to go read the article knowing that there's been some policy changes, but it's called Rehab to Death.
2: Thank, Thank you. you. so much. Thank you for the opportunity.
1: You bet, have a good day. Thanks.
0: Thank you for tuning in this week to Aging Life Network. Please join host Nancy Oriola for another edition of the program next Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern time and 10 a.m. Pacific time on the Voice America Health and Wellness channel. We can't wait to talk again.